That was really good, I thought. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Andrew, for just blessing us. Um, and always so, Nancy was saying this morning, you know, joyful people sing, happy people sing. And, um, and you know what, I see that in you, in you Andrew, and the way you serve us, and, and uh, it really is a blessing. And, and Rory, I know um, it's a lot uh, to Sunday after Sunday to care for us in that way. So uh, we appreciate both of you uh, tremendously. Um, I've, uh, I've often made the comment uh, that simply believing and saying, well, simply saying I believe in Jesus uh, doesn't necessarily mean that um, you're saved. Uh, if someone asks you, who is Jesus Christ, and you would be right if you identified Jesus, and you say, well, I believe that uh, he is God and he is man and he's in two distinct natures and yet only one person. Uh, we've seen the Apostle John drive that point home throughout his gospel in the first 16 chapters, haven't we? Uh, this is God the Son. He is God incarnate. He is full of glory and majesty and and power and, and all authority in heaven and in earth is, is under him. And he's clearly God incarnate. This, this baby who was born in a manger, and we'll talk about that next week on Christmas morning. This is God in, in the flesh. And the thing is, is John's gospel drives this point home, um, not as the end of what it means to believe in Jesus, it's not the end of belief in Jesus. You are not saved if you say, I believe Jesus is God incarnate. It is foundational, but he lays it for us as a foundation of faith in Jesus. The point is that you can rightly identify Jesus as the Messiah and God incarnate. You can celebrate his birth at Christmas, and we can sing songs about it like Joy to the World, but if you do not understand and you do not believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross, in how Jesus the Messiah saves, then really you're no closer to heaven than the demons that recognized him when they called him the Holy One of Israel. Truly believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus as your Savior means believing in his person but it also includes believing in what he has done on your behalf on the cross to save you. So you could think of it this way. For John's gospel to be complete, John must move from John 1 to 16 to the arrest, trial, the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus in chapters 18 to 21. Without those chapters, the final chapters of the gospel, the person of Jesus cannot complete the work of redemption that he came to secure for his people. And the reason I was thinking about this is because the prayer of John, the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 that we finished looking at last week, it kind of served, in my mind, I thought about it as a bridge between the person of Christ and his finished work of redemption. When Jesus offers his high priestly prayer in John 17, he is showing that Jesus was sent into the world, and this is where knowing what Jesus did is critical, to be our mediator who intercedes between us and God to bring peace between lost sinners and the holy God against whom, whom they have sinned and rebelled. And so it's in light of that when we think about the birth of Christ, we are thinking about, yes, the birth of God incarnate who came to be among men, but we are thinking about the birth of the one mediator that God has given between God and, and man, and that is, that is Jesus Christ. And that is so foundational 
for us to believe. Now, we went through this in the Sunday school class uh, a number of months ago. We looked at Christ our mediator, and, and some of you aren't able to make it for Sunday school. And so um, we're, we're going to go through that idea of Christ being our mediator again together as a as the whole church body together, because it's, it's that critical. That's what John 17 is driving home, Jesus Christ standing in, in our place. And so the one verse that we're going to look at is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's going to be specifically, we're just going to unpack uh, three things, what, why we need a mediator, what makes Jesus qualified to be our mediator, and what it means for us to have Jesus as our mediator. And this, this one verse um, is in 1 Timothy 2.5 is really just, um, you could look at it as sort of a heading that we're going to unpack in those ways. But I'll read from 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 7 this morning. So let's hear the word of, of the Lord together again. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Thus concludes the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you again this morning, grateful for the scriptures that we have heard read, for our call to worship, for the hearing of the psalm being read, for the singing of praises to your name. We, we thank you, O Father, that we can gather together and to reflect on your great promises to us in Christ. We thank you, O oh God, that you have provided for us a means of salvation, a means of reconciliation with you and the one true God, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator, the one mediator given for man to be reconciled to you, O oh God. We pray that as we seek to understand what this means for us in some greater detail, that you would uh, bless the, the preaching of your word and that your saints and your children would be encouraged by what they hear this morning, that they would be reminded of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he came to save them. We pray, God, for those who are even here, maybe in our midst this morning, that have not yet come to the one mediator offered for them, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are still standing before a holy God without one to make atonement for their sins and to bridge the gap of redemption that they need as sinners. We pray, God, that they would come to realize that there is one mediator given, and it is Jesus Christ, our Savior alone. Help to drive that home in their hearts, Father, that they might ultimately turn to him and be redeemed and be welcomed into the family of God. We pray for your blessing this morning on the remainder of our worship service, that it would honor you, that you would be with the preaching of your word by your spirit to strengthen, convict, uphold, and build up your people until you return again, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. So if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, you'll see that Paul, he opened this, 
this chapter by urging Timothy to make sure that the church prays for all people. That's what he said in verses 1 to 2. He, he wants them to consider and pray for the needs of, of all people. The word he uses, supplication for them. He wanted them to consider their lostness and pain and misery, showing compassion toward them through interceding on their behalf. That's part of what we're to do as a church is to make supplications for those people in the world, to think about their lostness and to pray for them, um, to intercede for them on their behalf in, in compassion. In, in doing that, what we're recognizing when we pray for the world and we pray for sinners who are outside of the goodness and the kindness of God is we're recognizing their value and their worth before God. And, and even in the world, we're recognizing that by offering thanksgiving to God for them. Does that make sense? So in the world, we're thanking God for the world, for people, recognizing their value and worth, interceding, making supplications for them. And Paul says that this is to be done for all people. By all people, he means whether high or low on the societal ladder. It doesn't matter whether kings and queens or whether the drug addict on the side of the street or the prostitute on the side of the street. It doesn't really matter what their economic status is. We as God's people are to intercede for the lowly and for those, and for those who appear to be important and mighty. And one very practical outcome of this, of doing this, Paul says, is that we do this so that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, he says, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, the aim of the prayers of the saints on behalf of the world is the salvation of their souls with the result that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life and, dignif and dignified. And you see that in verse 3, that, that this, is, this is good, Paul says. He says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people, again, whether high or low, kings and princes or prostitutes, thieves and, and drug addicts, and everything in between, he desires all people to be what, he says, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so it pleases God that we pray for the lost and that we care for their souls as he does. And we don't know who the elect are. We don't presume to know who the elect are, and we never should presume that. We don't consider anyone beyond the saving power of God's grace. And so of first importance is that we make it a point in our private life and in our corporate gatherings to pray for the salvation of all people. God knows who those are that are his. He knows those he will save. And so we cast the net, if you will, and the seed everywhere. Why? Right there in the middle of this section in verse 5, Paul says, Why this prayer for the lost to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth is so urgent for us to be praying consistently about, he says, verse 5, for, you could circle that word, for, this is the reason, verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel. This is why Paul says in verse 7, following that verse 5 and 6, he says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He says, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. In other words, this is the heart of the gospel which we are to proclaim and believe. This is, if you will, the heart of Christmas, that the Messiah who was born a Savior to save our souls is the one mediator between God and men. There is no other. Either Jesus 
stands between a holy God and a sinner, or the sinner stands between a holy God by themselves. And if you're standing before a holy God by yourself with no mediator, you have no hope of redemption. The only thing that awaits you is the judgment of a holy God upon a rebellious sinner. This is why we need a mediator. Why do we need a mediator? And this, this goes back to the very opening pages of the scriptures. When God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, he created them in his image. He, he did this in order to reflect his glory in the world. He doesn't reflect his full glory, for that would make us God, right? But he, to the extent that God saw fit, he made mankind the crown of his creation, the pinnacle of his glory, Psalm 8, 5 says. That glory which Adam and Eve were to reflect as his image bearers, the glory that you and I were to reflect as being made in the image of God, it became veiled. It became covered on account of what? On account of Adam and Eve's sin. Their, their sin their stain of sin made them incapable of reflecting the glory of God as they were intended to reflect. And Romans 1, Paul tells us that the glory of God's created things, even us, became the glory that man pursued. They pursued the glory of creation. They pursued the glory of themselves rather than pursuing and worshiping the one God that they were created to worship. Man turned in on themselves and they turned in on creation. And this is why Paul says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. All of creation. You and me, every human that's ever walked on the face of the earth, falls short of bringing God the glory that they were intended to bring him. And when you read in Genesis and you read the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis, you find that when they were created, God said, behold, everything I created was good. And he says it was very good. And God was walking with them in the midst of the garden. And they had fellowship with God and communion with God. But as soon as sin entered the world and they rebelled against God, you begin to see a change in the relationship between Adam and Eve and their creator. When they sin, they, they hide themselves and they, they hide from the God that they knew. And it says that they were ashamed when God says, where, is, where have you been? Where, where have you gone? I was with you in the midst of the garden. And Adam says, well, I was ashamed. And so I hid myself from you because that's what sin does. What sin ultimately does is it led them into a state of darkness, and it led them into a state of ignorance before God. Where they were once able to hear from God and to understand his word and to understand his will, they had lost that ability entirely. Sin had also led them into a state of guilt and condemnation before God where they were once free to stand before God and to walk with him in, in holiness without shame and without fear, they were now under God's judgment. Because remember he said, in the, the day of you eat of the tree that I've commanded you not to eat, you shall surely what? You shall die. And they did. And now they feel the weight of their guilt and then thirdly, sin had led them into a state of rebellion and corruption against God. 
where once they were willing subjects underneath their God, responding in love to the goodness and the kindness and the person of God, sin had turned them against his rule and against his reign, and they ultimately abandoned God, and they were, in in essence, kicked out of his kingdom, the Garden of Eden. And now they lived in a new kingdom, in a fallen kingdom, the kingdom that we know as the kingdom of this world. That's this kingdom here in the world. It's fallen. It's destitute. It's under a different ruler. And it's under, it's under Satan. And it's under his rule. That's the kingdom of this world. That's the kingdom that sinners, Adam and Eve, and all in them lived under. So sin leaves you ignorant of the truth. It leaves you guilty and rebellious before a holy God. And it leaves you under submission to a different king. Spiritual death. And when you read the scriptures, is it not? Is it not the picture that the scriptures paint? Do the scriptures paint a picture of glory and beauty and majesty and everything being good after Genesis chapter 2? No, you see a fallen world. You, You see, even in the beginning, where God judges the entire world by a flood. I've said this to a number of you, talking about the condition of our own world, because when you look at the world, you don't see the world good. It's just not. And I often think about it at the level of corruption that we're going. I marvel at how gracious God is. Because don't forget that when he judged the world by the flood, that is at the point of human history where God actually says, I've had enough. Like he reached such such a rebellion in the world that God says, I have had enough and I am now going to judge and destroy everybody in the world. Now, our world is bad. Can it get worse? Yes. Is it getting worse? It sure seems like it. More and more rebellion. But think about this, that God is still graciously withholding that final day that's to come when he will judge the living and the dead. And the only way to escape that judgment is, you might say, the better ark, the better salvation. The only way to escape God's judgment that is to come is to enter into the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator. You must come into him and trust him if you are to be delivered from the coming wrath of a holy God upon the earth. The world and humanity, beloved, is turned on its head. Good is called evil and evil is called good. And every man and woman does what is right in their own eyes. This is the world in rebellion against God. And so, beloved, we need a mediator. God is holy and he's just. He will punish sin. And our sin against God is eternally held to our account because the one against whom we have sinned is himself infinite and holy. And so, How in the world are we going to pay that price? How? 
how in the world can you and me, sinners, who have sinned against a holy God, pay that price that we owe? Job asks a question like this in chapter 9, verse 2. Truly I know that it is so. He's saying, I know my state before God is guilty. And then he asks, how can a man be in the right before God? That's the question. Well, the answer we know, beloved, is that we need a Savior who will be a mediator. What does it mean to be a mediator? It means this. uh, The word mediate suggests a go-between or an arbiter. A mediator is someone who can reconcile two warring parties together. Someone who can restore lost peace. In the case of sinners, in the case of men and women and God, the sinner needs someone who can stand between God and his rebellious, alienated image bearers and intervene God's grace on them. Now, when you look at the scriptures in the Old Testament, this is all over the pages of scripture. There's a great deal about the ministry of angels who appear to men, bringing with them divine messages of comfort and of warning. They were, they were a kind of mediator, a go-between, between God and men. You also see Moses, his office was as a mediator of the old covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai. And so Moses is kind of this prophet of God who speaks to the people on God's behalf. And what does it mean to be a prophet of God? It means that that Moses was mediating their ignorance. They were ignorant of the truth. They were ignorant of God. And so Moses was sent to be this mediator as a prophet who would come between and say, this is what God says to you sinners. And and so he's mediating it. And then, then you see it through the sacrifices of sin that were offered to God by who? by the Levitical priests, by the priests that God had given to them. And so these priests were were kind of these mediators of what? The mediators of the sin and guilt of the people. Priests were given to say, you know what? You are guilty and sinful before God, and so this priest is going to mediate for you between these sacrifices that are given so that you can have this access to God And then what other kind of mediator does he give? He gives the mediator of of a king. Mediators of prophets, mediators of priests. Then he gives them mediator of a king. King David was their mediator. Do you remember before they even had a king, when they said, give us a king like all of the earth, and God says, I've been your king, and you've now rejected me. And he tells Samuel, he says, listen to their voice and give them a mediator of a king. And so King David was one of those mediators. And what did that mediator do? He, he brought them under together under his rule and under his reign as he mediates their rebellion against God by representing the rule of God over his people. So, so you see it in the scriptures prophet, priest, king. All of those pictures are all what you might call types and shadows of what was to come. Because back in Genesis 3.15, when man fell, God promised a mediator one who would be born of the seed of the woman who would then crush the head of the serpent. He would mediate, he would come in between God and and Satan. Someone who could bridge the eternal gap and mediate between God and men. Someone who was a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, and a perfect 
king. Why? So that he could overcome our ignorance, our guilt, and our subdue our rebellion. Who fits the mold? Jesus Christ. In every sense. He fits it completely. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he says, Jesus became to us, get this, wisdom from God. What's that? The prophet. He became to us righteousness and sanctification, the priest. And he became our redemption which is the king. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's why Jesus Christ is qualified to be our mediator. And what makes him qualified is this. What happened with all of those Old Testament people and all of those Old Testament pictures, you can read this through the book of Hebrews, is that they themselves were sinners. And so they were incapable of bridging that gap. They were incapable of completely mediating our ignorance and our sin and our guilt and our rebellion. There needed to be one who would come into the world who was without sin, who was a perfect man in every single way, uh, one who kept the law of God on their behalf, one who submitted to the will of God perfectly, one who brought glory and reflected his image in a, in a, in a perfect way. We needed a second Adam, Paul says in Romans 5.17. This is why when John opens up his gospel in chapter 1, verse 14, what does he say? He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, he says, full of grace and truth. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And you'll notice he calls him what? The man, Jesus. Don't forget, beloved, that God, the Son, God incarnate, is the man, Jesus. He fully took on our humanity. Flesh and blood in every way. In every way that you live in the world, Jesus Christ was fully human. He walked, he talked, he grew, he ate. He had sorrow. He had weaknesses in some, in some sense from the ailments of the world. He, maybe he better say he endured those weaknesses. Everything that we experienced in life, Jesus Christ was fully man to experience. 100%. But in order to, in or, and without sin, but in order to mediate, he had to also be fully God. Because God, being infinite and holy and eternal, who would come between, if he was just a man, then who would represent us before God? There would be no one. And so Jesus Christ had to come and take on our humanity and flesh, but also remain perfectly, 100% fully God. He never ceased to be the Son of God and God incarnate. Fully man and fully God, without sin, so that he then could pay the debt that we could not pay. So he could lay down his life to pay 
the price that we sinners ought to pay for our own rebellion. But you know what else he gives to us? He doesn't just pay our debt, but he has to give us something. In, in other words, when we, if we get to heaven, you do not, and this is the lie that's in the world, you will not enter heaven based off of some kind of assumed neutrality to holiness. You understand, Jesus doesn't just wipe away your debt. If Jesus only wiped away our debt and said, okay, not guilty, we would have already been lost, right? Because after he wiped away our debt, what would we have done five minutes later? We would have incurred more debt. That's just the way it is. We'll keep sinning and we'll keep doing it. So he can't just erase the debt and make you neutral. He actually needs to give you positives on the ledger slide to make you, to consider you righteous. That's what Jesus does. He comes, he takes our debt, but then he makes us counted as righteous. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the kind of mediator he is because we have no righteousness of our own. And so Christ God incarnate comes into the world to bridge that gap, and that's what we've seen him do in John 17. He prays for us as the one who's standing in our place, and what he prays for us is what it means then for you and I to have Jesus as our mediator, all of the fruit of what Christ has done becomes ours by faith in him. Place your faith in Jesus Christ as your God, as your mediator, as your savior, and redemption is yours. And you're redeemed from your sin and rebellion. Suddenly you see. Don't you know that, beloved? Is it? Do you remember when that happened to you? Maybe, maybe you grew up in the church and you don't, can't really tell, but I remember a moment where suddenly it's like I was blind and now I see. I see what a sinner I am. how rebellious I am in my flesh. I saw my selfishness. I saw my perversions. I saw my pride. I saw my ignorance. I saw my hatred for other people. How can you miss it? How can you miss it when you Wake up in the morning and you're still with you and you can't get rid of it because you know that wherever I go, my flesh goes with me and it's fallen. Don't you remember seeing it and then realizing that unless I have someone to take this sin away from me and to pay the price because I'm guilty, I will be lost forever. And then you come to Christ and you repent of your sin and you turn to him and now you realize you have a mediator. And what does that mean for you? Let me give you quickly here. 
four things. You can turn to Hebrews 9 if you want. It's just such glorious truths in this, all this chapter. I'm just going to highlight four here. Hebrews 9.12 says this, because this is all about, we talked in Hebrews 8 about how the old covenant is obsolete and we have a better mediator. Now he's highlighting what Christ did. And in verse 12, he says, start in verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, when Christ appeared as a high priest, John 17, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, doing what? Securing an eternal redemption. What does it mean when you have Jesus Christ as your mediator? It means that you are forever forgiven and that the work is completely done. There is nothing you can do to add to the security of your salvation. There's nothing you can do to diminish the certainty of it. It's done in Christ. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews 9. What else? He says in verse 14. I always do this. Let's look at 13 first. <laughs> I always do that. For if the blood of bull of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to do what? To serve the living God. When Jesus Christ is your mediator, he secures your redemption, but he also frees you to serve the living God in his grace. Unlike Adam and Eve who were given over to their sin, we are now freed to obey Christ. We are free to live without fear or anxiousness about this life. We're free to do the will of God who's equipped you for it. You're free to forgive those who have as he has forgiven your own heinous sin. Isn't that transformational? If you are in Jesus, you, you've committed heinous sins that were forgiven, and now you're free to be at peace with the world and forgive those who've sinned against you. Ultimately, they need God's forgiveness, but you can still be at peace you're free to choose not to sin. I know one guy was so enslaved in a particular sin that it was, it was like the man in Pilgrim's Progress who was in the iron box. He knew he was a sinner. And he just couldn't stop. He just couldn't stop. He would give himself over and over and over and over to the same sin. In Christ, you don't have to choose to do the sin that you do. Whatever it is, He's freed you from the power and dominion of sin. And if any of you are sitting here thinking, ah, 
I have no sin to confess or no, nothing has power over me. I would just encourage you, take stock. Look in the mirror, think about it. There's lots of sins that you and I are committing that Christ delivers us from. Thirdly, Hebrews 9 verse 15 says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ is your mediator, and it, this means that the promise of your eternal inheritance is what? Secure. Boy, I know I shared this story that I read back uh, when we went through the book of Hebrews, but it just paints the picture so well. I read a story of a, one of Asia's richest women. Remember this? Named Nina Wang. She died in 2007 at the age of 69. She had ovarian cancer. And she was the head of Hong Kong's China Chem Property Empire. And after her husband was kidnapped in 1990 and disappeared and he was never found again, she inherited, inherited the China Chem Property Company and she turned it into a multi-billion dollar business. And so it was worth something like around $13 billion by the time that she died. And so initially, according to the will that she wrote in 2002, she left the empire to her family members and to a bunch of charities and other organizations. And in 2006, she changed her will. And she left it all to a previously unknown Hong Kong feng shui master because he promised eternal life to her. And that was her last will and testament, and she died in 2017. And so, of course, what happens with the family? The family rises up, and they argue in court by, um, who says that the feng shui master used his influence to deceive her into leaving him her fortune. And here's what they said. They say, we say Tony Chan, that, that's the feng shui master, lied to the deceased by telling her that performing certain feng shui practices, including putting his name in her will, that's convenient, would ensure that she would live forever, or at least a very long time. It's a sad, sad on all kinds of levels. And so, you see here the richest woman, terrified to die, seeking some kind of hope. You see, on another level, the lies of humanity and this feng shui master, corrupt, promising things that he can't give. And then, of course, the promises of a dead man or woman have no authority over the life of the living. And so, in all of these things, what I remembered and think about is this, is that Human inheritances, no matter how sincere or specific you be, you can be, they're ultimately left to the decisions of men and women. You can never be sure of whatever inheritance it is. It is earthbound. It's going to have earthbound results. There's no guarantee as to the execution of that will. The only thing that is certain is that the person has to die before it takes effect. But that's not the case with the eternal inheritance of Christ, is it? Jesus Christ, our mediator, died to secure our redemption, to, to make us free to serve the living God, and to secure our eternal inheritance. When you die, if you are in Christ, where are you going? 
you're going to be with him where he is forever to do what? To see his glory. Where did we see that? John 17. And why is it true? Because Jesus Christ prayed that it would be true and because he is your mediator. Finally, look at Hebrews 9, 27 to 28. What does it mean to have Christ as your mediator? And just as it is appointed for man to die once after, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ sees your heart. He knows your heart. He loves you. He, he desires you to be with him. He can see that you don't want to live in this world forever. And he knows that he is coming back for those for whom he is their mediator. Beloved, I, I mean, I don't know how to drive home the point that Jesus Christ loves you any more than pointing you to the cross. He laid down his life for his enemies. He laid it down for you and he took all of your shame and he took all of your guilt and he took all your hatred and he took all your sin and he took all your rebellion and he took all your darkness and he took all of your hostility and he paid the price for all of it. And now he's left us here to live through him as he stands before us in a holy God and he says, don't worry, I am coming back to bring you to be with me. Is there anything better than that? Nothing. There is no better Christmas present. Unwrap what you will under the Christmas tree. Christ, our mediator, lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... We come before you humbly. We come before you thankful that you have placed yourself between God Almighty and ruined sinners. And you have won our redemption and you have secured it by your blood and by the giving of yourself on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we thank you for praying for us in John chapter 17, for being our mediator, for coming into the world and living the life that we couldn't live, for being our second Adam, for obeying the law of God perfectly on our behalf, for humbly submitting yourself under the will of your Father that you might come and be a sacrifice and an atonement maker for our sins. We know, O oh God, that it is not by our own good works, it is not by our own righteousness, it is not by our own endeavors that we can be saved. We bring nothing before your throne of grace, Lord Jesus, but but empty hands and hearts that long to be forgiven and that plead for your mercy and your grace. Seek as we may and try as we may to find rest apart from you, Lord. We have failed in our lives.
we know because of our sin that we needed a Savior and you have fulfilled all that we needed, Lord Jesus. You have given us eyes to see. You have become our wisdom. You have forgiven us of all of our sin. You have become our sanctification and our righteousness. And you, Lord Jesus, our, our King, a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, a perfect king, the one mediator between man and God. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our mediator. Thank you for our salvation and for loving us. Help us to go out into the world and to pray for the world as you have called us to do. We pray for our president and for all of those in our government that are under the president. We pray, Lord, that you would bring salvation to them, that they might come to the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be forgiven of their sin. That they might recognize the lostness of their own estate and the emptiness of the pursuits of the things of this world, the pursuits of power, the pursuits of money, the pursuits of fame, that they might recognize just how vain those things are. And like you saved Nebuchadnezzar and you, you gave him new eyes to see, oh God, we pray that you would redeem our president, that you would save him, that in these final moments of his life, these final years, that he would humbly throw himself at the mercy seat and find forgiveness in your name, Lord Jesus. Lord, there are so many that are leading this country, that are leading it into pits of despair and darkness, and they need redemption, O oh God. We pray for them that you would bring by your spirit the power of the gospel, unleash it upon them, O oh God, that they might see themselves naked and destitute before you. Strip them of their robes, Strip them of their places of high honor that they place themselves in and all of these fancy gatherings, O oh God, where they exalt one another and praise one another. Let them to see, O oh God, the emptiness of those things that they might see Jesus for who he is. They might turn and be healed. That they might see the wickedness of supporting all of the ungodly things that they support in this world turning truth on its head, mutilating children in the womb and outside of the womb, undermining your institution of marriage that you have given from the beginning, Lord, of man and woman, confusing young people about their gender, calling men women and women men. And Lord, it is so awful. The only way that that can change, Father, is if you grant to us revival in the hearts and the minds of our leaders. Lord, may that kind of revival begin here in this small church. That there would be none who are here this morning hearing your gospel proclaimed that would leave this place without being reconciled to you through Christ. May you pour your spirit out upon us and may you save and redeem every soul that is here. And may we in turn go out into the world and pray for them, proclaim to them the gospel. Lord, we also pray for the most lowly that are among us. We don't often see them living in an upscale, middle-class kind of neighborhood, but Lord, our eyes are not blind to them when we do see them. There are those who have given themselves, oh God, over to drug abuse and prostitution and alcoholism, who have given themselves over to perversions and darkness of all kinds of wickedness. Some do it publicly on the streets, oh God, and some do it privately in their own home. But we know, oh God, that you see each and every one of them that are enslaved to that kind of sin. We pray, O oh God, that we would be beacons of light to them and spokesmen and women of truth, that we would be ambassadors of your gospel, 
that we would not be ashamed to go to the leopards, that we would not be ashamed to go to those who are the most lowly among us. They need to be redeemed, O God, and they need to hear that there is good news offered to them through your Son. We pray, O God, that our feet and our hands would be active in the lives in which you place us, that we would not be a selfish people with the good news that you have given to us, that we would not be hoarders of the gospel, but that we would be those who spread it faithfully. Lord, we need your power to do that in our lives. We need your strength to enable us to continually do that, even when the hostility of the world grows against us. Oh God, let us not be ashamed, but help us to stand firm and help us to be faithful to proclaim Christ to a lost and a dying world. In all these things, Lord, we pray so that we might lead a quiet, peaceful, and dignified life because that would mean that the world around us is being changed by the glory of Christ. We pray that you would do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.